Father, we just thank you for your grace and your goodness. And Lord, as we uh, look at the identity that you have given to us, Father, we thank you that you love us, that we're your children, that we're your chosen people, a royal priesthood. Pray these truths could really sink in of your love, and then it could be lived out in our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In this chapter, we're going to be looking at a new identity, the identity that God has given to us in Christ. Uh, Peter's going to emphasize in some very descriptive terms who we are in Christ, but then also with that is he's going to show us how that identity should be lived out. If this is truly who we are and who God has made us to be, then how does that impact our lives? I think that we're living at a time where we have a culture, we have a people group where there's a loss of identity. We don't know who we are. We're we're walking around hungry, searching for identity. And if you don't have identity, in a lot of ways, it's like a life without protection around it. Like the book of Nehemiah, where the temple was built, but there was no walls around the temple. And so even as believers... We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we don't have the wall of protection around us. What really protects us is knowing who we are in Christ. That is secure when so many other things are not secure in our lives. Now, bear with me for just a second. This is just a theory, a hunch. It's my own thoughts. It's definitely not from the Word of God, so please sort it out. But I think that the place that we naturally get our identity from when we're young children is from our fathers. That, that just seems to me, as I observe the way things work, as you take a young child, as he spends time with his father, as she spends time with his father, and it just naturally secures identity. And so for, for many, growing up with an absent father, then, then that can turn into this loss of identity. Like, who am I? Where do I belong? And ultimately, it's God's desire that we find our identity in our Heavenly Father. Just working with young men over the years, we've had lots of young men on staff here at RMC. I was a young man when I came on staff here as a 21-year-old. Within usually 15 minutes to a half an hour, I can start to figure out in a 22-year-old's life what kind of relationship he had with his dad. Give me a 22-year-old guy, give me a cup of coffee, give me an hour, and I could probably pinpoint the relationship that he had with his dad. If it was present or if it was absent, if it was strong or it was somewhere in between, and the guys that had a relationship with their dad, even if it was difficult, but if they had a relationship with dad, they grew up with dad in the home, they have a huge head start. And then guys that don't have that, that there's, a, there's a void and there's an emptiness there. And you go, man, this sounds really discouraging. It's not. Because no matter if you had a relationship with your dad or you didn't have a relationship with your dad, The ultimate identity is found in our Father, knowing that we're loved by our Heavenly Father. Peter was a guy, I think, that got his identity squared away as we read his writings. It would have been easy for Peter to wear the identity of failure. As you look at the Gospels, they're very honest about his mistakes and about his sin. But Peter didn't go through his life wearing his failures. He went around wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness, wearing the fact that he was God's son. So as he's sharing this with the church, these are things that he's lived. He's saying, I know that I'm a chosen generation. I know that I'm a royal priesthood. I know that I'm the habitation of God. Because we're going to go through some information tonight, and it's important, but hopefully at the end of it, you have an opportunity to look at your identity and going, am I living in the new identity of Christ? 
Are you defined by how much money you make? Are you defined by how much money you have in the bank? Are you defined what people say about you? You know, if people think you're doing well, do you feel secure in your identity? Is your identity found in your possessions, you know, in your home or your cars? Or is your identity secure in your relationship with your heavenly father? So I hope you're blessed and encouraged by this chapter. Let's look in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. So Peter says, look, in light of these truths, you need to lay aside these sins. The word therefore, as you know, takes us to the prior paragraph. Go ahead and just look at the end of chapter 1. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in chapter 1. It describes the word of God, that the word of God lives and abides forever. The grass and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So in light of the fact of God's saving power through his word, the eternal power of his word, then respond to his word. Therefore, lay aside these things. And the first is malice. Malice means ill will. Do do you have ill will towards somebody tonight? God doesn't want that to build or fester or grow into gangrene. He just wants us to lay it aside, lay aside all malice. And then deceit. Deceit is concealing or misrepresenting. If we're in this habit of walking in deceit, of manipulating, being deceptive, God would want us to lay that as a side. Hypocrisy, where we do say one thing and do another, preach one thing, but then live another way. Acting, and God's saying lay aside hypocrisy. And envy, envy easily creeps into our lives where we're longing the blessings that God has given to somebody else. And then evil speaking, if we're in the habit of speaking evil toward, towards others. And there's a huge motivation to do this. And it's verse 2, where we are encouraged to have desire for the word of God. A lot of times in my life, I wonder, why don't I have desire for the word of God? I've got desire for all of these other things. And it could be that I need to lay aside sin in order that I give opportunity for my desire for the word of God to grow. There's only so much that can fill this cup. There's only so much that can fill this life. And if it's filled with malice and it's filled with envy, then there's not going to be room for the word of God. So, so we lay aside the sin so that, verse 2, as newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. So the, the analogy is as newborn babes They desire milk, that pure milk, and then they grow. We're to have craving for the pure milk of God's word. It's amazing how infants eat. They say that in the first three months, they're growing a pound and a half every month. That's impressive. I've always wanted to put on a little bit more weight, you know? An ounce a day. We have four, four kids, and when they were infants, I, I remember, man, they'll do anything to eat. It's, it's impressive what babies will do to eat. They will get your attention until you feed them. It doesn't matter what time of night it is. Sleep is not a factor compared to eating. Eating is the top priority. That's the way God's made them and designed them so the growth will take place. And part of the new identity that God has given to us is he's saying, have that kind of hunger for God's word. Crave 
the pure milk of the word, have an appetite for the word of God because that's how you grow, that you may grow thereby. There's no substitutes, you know? If a baby doesn't eat, they don't grow. And for us, if we're not in the word of God, digesting the word of God, meditating upon the word of God, we're not going to grow. What I love about this at the end of verse 2 is if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Gracious is what fuels the appetite for God's word. When we realize this relentless pursuit of God, that he would give his only begotten son, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he doesn't save us according to our Bible reading. He doesn't say, read Genesis to Revelation and you'll be saved. He says, believe and you'll be saved. And understanding the grace that God has given to us. Have you experienced this in your life when, when you've tasted the grace of God? It causes you to want to read the word of God. You go, man, I want to get to know this kind of love. I've never experienced this kind of love before. It's, it's unconditional. It's steadfast. It's, it's gracious. It's merciful. Some of you know my story and how God worked in my life, but I grew up in a Christian home, went to Christian school, always heard that I was supposed to read the Bible, but never had any desire to read the Bible. And then when I was a freshman in high school, God really revealed to me, Eric, while you've wanted nothing to do with me, I've wanted everything to do with you. And the next morning, for the first time in my life, I wanted to read the Word of God. I, I woke up and I wanted to read Matthew chapter 1. And I can remember what a strange feeling that was, to, to have that desire to want to read the Word of God. So may God, in a fresh way, reveal His grace to us, His unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. May that grace woo us into craving the Word of God. And church, I've got to tell you, Part of this new identity is that we've received is we never grow out of this insatiable appetite for God's word. This isn't something that you just have as a new believer, and then you're like, oh, I'm done with the milk of the word. Yes, you grow and you start to eat spiritual meat. You have spiritual steaks and filet mignon. But that desire to be in the word of God and just to read it and meditate upon it and journal it should never go away. It always needs to be a part of our heart and our life. It's the foundation of the identity that God has given to us. In verse 3, going into verse 4, coming to him as living stone, to, coming, at, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Jesus is described as a living stone. And we come to him for salvation. We come to him as our foundation. Now think about this description of, of living stone for, for just a minute. The idea of a stone is security, stability. It's, it's always there. It passed the test of time. You think of a giant rock on the ocean and it just continues to be stable with the pounding of the waves. And, and Christ is that stone. He's that foundation. He's that security to the point that we have eternal security in him. But the nice thing about Christ is he's not just security, he's alive. He's the living stone. So it speaks of his power and his stability, but it also speaks of a, a very intimate relationship that Christ has with us because he's living. And this stone was rejected by men. Christ was rejected and crucified, but chosen by God and precious. In the Father's economy, in the decision of the Father, it was ordained that the Son would die upon the cross that Jesus would be crucified for us. This, this was chosen 
by the Father. And Jesus submitted to that plan. And to the Father, it was precious. To the Father, it was valuable. To the point when Jesus was getting baptized, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is him. I I love him. I'm, I'm pleased with him. And it goes on to show us who we are in Christ. You also as living stones. This is part of the new identity that we've been given as we are living stones like Christ is a living stone. So there should be some stability in our lives that comes through Christ. Some security in our lives that that comes through Christ. And yes, we are alive and and we are are living. Christ was rejected. We can anticipate that we're going to be rejected as we live out this Christian life. Now, notice what happens with these living stones. Are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here we are, living stones, and we're being built up to be the holy habitation for God. To be built up to be his priesthood. To be able to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. Many times in our relationship with Christ, we only think about ourselves, don't we? It's me, me and Jesus. And that's important. You have your own personal relationship with Christ. I don't want to diminish that. But notice, we're one stone fitting together with many stones that together we make the habitation of God. Together we're the household of God. This is radical. This building is not the household of God. It's a blessing. It's a great place to be able to meet. But you and me, us, brothers and sisters to Christ, together, collectively, God chooses to dwell in us and dwell in our midst. We're the temple of of the Holy Spirit. That's who we are, individually and corporately. Isn't that a cool thought to think about identity? Maybe you've been going through your life and you're like, who am I, you know? Maybe I didn't have a relationship with my dad. I, I can't sort out my successes and my failures. And the father would speak to you and say, you know what? You're a living stone of which I dwell inside of. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And together, collectively, you make the household of God. I was thinking about it when we were worshiping tonight. To, to think about the beauty of the body of Christ coming together with one voice to, to sing to God. And together we make God's habitation. And we think about the different churches in town. And collectively, together, we're God's dwelling place. God doesn't look down and see different denominations and different churches. He looks and sees those that truly believe in him and follow him. And he says, those are my people. We fan out a little bit to all of Colorado and then throughout the United States. Throughout the world, there's believers gathered together. And together, collectively, we're the habitation of God. Now, what's the the purpose of being this spiritual house? So that we could be priests. Priests offer sacrifices. No longer do we give physical sacrifices. We can be thankful. We don't have any lambs in the back. We're not going to be doing that tonight, aren't you? I'm glad. In the new covenant, we get to offer spiritual sacrifices. We get to be living sacrifices upon God's altar, surrendering to the Lord, offering our very lives, offering the sacrifice of praise. And it's acceptable to God. 
and it's through Jesus Christ. The only way that we can give anything to the Lord that's acceptable is because of Christ, because we're robed in Christ's righteousness. Describes Christ as the living stone in greater detail in verse 6. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Write down Isaiah 28, verse 16. This is quoting Isaiah 28, 16. These verses that we're going to read are prophecies from the Old Testament, prophesying of Jesus being crucified upon the cross. I lay in Zion, I lay in Jerusalem, a chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important building of the temple. Everything else is based off of that. And, and Jesus is our, our cornerstone. He is elect and he's precious. And then whoever believes on him will by no means be put to shame. What a great promise. You trust Christ, you believe in Christ, his promises, his claims, you're not going to be put, put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Jesus is precious to us. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's quoting Psalms 118, verse 22. And the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And then the last quote is Isaiah 8, verse 14. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. So there's two responses to the rock, to the cornerstone. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. You either believe on him and you're not put to shame, you're saved, or you reject Christ and over the course of a lifetime, if someone rejects Christ, says no to Christ, then ultimately they receive judgment upon, from the Lord. You might say, well, I feel pretty neutral to Jesus, you know? Jesus is saying, I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The other night we were watching a movie as a family, and the first 15 minutes of the movie were really clear, the message that they were sending, that you could be Christian, you could be Hindu, you could be Muslim, and it doesn't matter what you choose, all of them are inside of the same house. So they're like rooms inside of the same house. Well, that's not biblical. That's like Hollywood theology right there. Jesus doesn't share a room with Muhammad. He alone is God. He alone is the rock of salvation. He alone was God in human flesh that died upon the cross and rose again. And you either accept him, you accept all of him, and trust him and follow him, or you reject him. Sometimes with Jesus we say, well, I'm just not going to commit. I can remember growing up and and thinking, well, you know, I'll just decide later on. I'm going to have my fun now, and then when I get older and I'm an adult, then, then, then I'll decide. And that's a dangerous place to be because a non-decision is a no decision. If someone asks you to go to coffee and you're like, oh, let me think about it. I'll decide later. They come up to you the next week. Hey, you want to go to coffee? Well, let me think about it. I'll decide later. And this goes on for six weeks. What are you going to do? Oh, I get it. You don't want to go to coffee. <laughs> the, the willingness to not commit is, is a no, no decision. And so what I find about Christ, though, is most people realize that there's no neutral ground in Christ. If you talk to most people, they've got an opinion about Christ. 
They either believe him, accepted him, have surrendered to him, or they're somewhere in the middle or they've completely rejected Christ. It's a great conversation starter. Where are you at with Christ? What are your thoughts and your beliefs about, about Christ? It goes back into our identity in verse 9. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what was the identity, the behavior that went with the identity of being God's spiritual house and being a priesthood? It was offering spiritual sacrifices. What's the behavior and the identity that goes with being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people? The result of that, how we should behave, is we go through our days proclaiming the praise of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. What a great place to be in marvelous light. The love of our Savior. To know that our sins are forgiven. To not be walking in darkness and to be walking in the light. How many of you guys saw the sunrise this morning? Anybody? Man, it's easier to catch the sunrise this time of year. I realized that this morning. But it was a beautiful, beautiful sunrise. It was marvelous light and God painting, painting the clouds. And how much more so in a spiritual reality do we dwell in the light? Let's look at these new identities that we've been given. You're, you're a chosen generation. That's an interesting phrase. We think about generations, how generations get their identity and they get coined as, as this or that, millennials, baby boomers, Generation X and and here God says, you're a chosen generation. Of all of the people on planet Earth right now, if you know Christ as your Savior, you've been chosen to be the child of God. You're a chosen generation. We're a chosen generation. There's a lot of power in knowing that you're, you're, you're chosen. If you feel like that identity bucket is lacking or feels void or feels empty, know that you're chosen by God. You're, you're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. What is that saying? Royal means that you're descendant of the king. So as sons and daughters of God, we're joint heirs with Christ. In Christ, you're royal, but you also get to be a priesthood. And the priesthood, like we talked about, gives those sacrifices to God. We're a holy nation. I like this because as the people of God, we make up a nation. And it's not a nation that's divided by a geographical boundary. It's a nation that's defined by the blood of Jesus. You can go to most places on the planet and find other believers and enjoy fellowship inside of that nation. Isn't that cool? Get on a plane and find other believers that are worshiping the Lord. We're, we're a holy nation. And almost the best for last in this list, we're his special people. This is expressed that we're God's treasure, that we're valued and we're loved by God. And this comes out of the context of Jesus being this stone that was rejected. God loved us enough to give us his son, and that's what makes God look down upon us and say, you're my special people. You're, you're my chosen people. You're, you're a treasure to me. I value you. And then we respond to that, and we get to proclaim his praise. It's that new identity. Just let it sink in a little bit of all that God has given to you. Do you see yourself in any of these? What I just read in verse 9? Already, you only see Peter. You're like, oh yeah. P 
Peter is a chosen generation. Peter's a royal priesthood. Holy nation, he must have been talking about Paul. Special people. Well, I'm special in another way, but I don't know. Right? I, I know I'm kind of weird. It, no, this, this is God declaring to you that this, this is who you are. You're, you're valued by God. In verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We're remembering what it was like to not know the Lord, to not be in marvelous light. But now you're God's people. He's your shepherd. You know what it's like to, to not have God's mercy in your life. But now you have obtained mercy. In verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. New identity, sojourners and pilgrims. I want you to kind of nudge somebody next to you and say, look, you're just passing through. Just go ahead. If you've got to reach across the chair, you can hit them. Hey, you're just passing through. You're a sojourner and you're a pilgrim. Hey, church, what makes vacation so great? You get to go home. Very good. Thank you. You get to go home. You're like, you know, this fast food place isn't that great, but that's okay. We're not going to be here very long. I don't know if you've ever booked one of those hotels on a vacation. There was one time we were driving out to uh, Kansas City, Missouri to see if some of Amber's extended family. And somewhere in between there, there's some cities. And we booked a hotel. I booked a hotel and went for the cheap as possible hotel. It looked pretty good online. And then we pulled in with our, our kids in, in tow. And it was one of those nights where it was like, ooh, I sure hope we don't get bed bucks, right? But what was I declaring to the family? I was like, you know what? We're just passing through. We're, we just need to get a little bit of sleep, and we'll get back in the van. Like, no joke, when I was paying the bill, there was some guy with his trailer and, you know, like with his tools in the back of, the, of this trailer, and he's like, my trailer got, got stolen in, in the middle of the night. And I'm like, well, we really need to be passing through. And like, sorry, our security cameras don't work. We, they're, not, they're not functional, you know, and all those, those types of things. But it was okay because we were just passing through. And sometimes in this life, it seems like it's going to be our forever home, doesn't it? We don't know anything different. All we can do is, is judge it by our own experience, but God says, look, you're, you're passing through. A lot of times we anticipate that we're going to be 70, 80, 85 years old. If God does give us that much time, we're still passing through. But, but what if you die at 53? What if those of you that are in your 20s, you, you die at 35? Like, would that change your mindset? You know, do, Let's just take 53, do some calculations. How much time you got left? Some of you are like, oh, well, I would have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> but we assume a lot, don't we? We, we just assume that life's going to continue like it's always been. And, and here Peter puts some emphasis and he says, I beg you, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, don't waste time on lust. And lust is warring against your soul. So make sure that you're on the offensive and you abstain from the lusts of the flesh. Abstain is to keep off or to keep at a distance. 
What we need to understand is, is lust is at a resent, relentless pursuit. Lust is always at war against our soul to try to get us to compromise. So if our defense isn't up, if we're not craving the word of God and fellowshipping with the Father, we're going to give in to the lusts of the flesh. You know, it is attacking us. It is at war with us. So part of our identity is we're sojourners and pilgrims. That's what we wear through this life. I'm God's son, I'm God's daughter, and I'm simply passing through. In verse 12, in response to this identity, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So as sojourners and pilgrims, we're not to give in to fleshly lusts, but we're to have honorable conduct. So that unbelievers, Gentiles can look on and glorify the Father. God wants us living a life of, of good works. The rest of the chapter really gives us a practical application of how to live honorably among unbelievers, of how to be salt and light among unbelievers. In verse 13, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. This may not be the top of our list when we think about being a witness, when we think about living honorably, but God says, obey every ordinance of man. Because in doing so, God is glorified. People see that we're living under the submission of the Father. All of our lives should be marked by coming under authority. And there's something about us that really bucks that, doesn't it? We don't want to submit. Here's this word. It says, submit. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Romans 13 tells us that God sets up human authorities. That that's God's authority being displayed. And so as long as man's not asking us to disobey God, we need to come underneath the ordinances of man. Well, I don't like that law, or I don't like having to, to pay taxes. God doesn't ask us. At the time that Peter's writing this, they're facing some very corrupt leaders. Nero is, is on the scene, the Roman Empire. This would be a great time to use Christianity as a means for revolution overthrow the Roman government. But that's not what Peter writes. That's not what Peter says. He says, come underneath every ordinance of man as long as they're not asking you to disobey the word of God because then God is glorified. Now, does your boss ask you to do things that you don't like? As long as it's not unbiblical, guess what? That's the authority that God has set up. So, okay, Lord, here, here it is. It's, it's not for us to to choose. It's for us to come underneath and, and say, okay, Lord, I'm trusting you. So by obeying the ordinances of man, then we're coming underneath the authority of God. We're coming underneath the protection of God and the blessing of God. And guess what? The world notices. Hey, your attitude's different towards the boss. Why is that? Well, that's because of Christ. Well, your attitude's different towards the government. Well, why is that? Well, that, that's because of Christ. I, I'm taking seriously that I want to obey the ordinance of men. I'll be honest with you. For some reason this week, I've been thinking about my taxes. Is this year 
winds up and then we head into the new year and there's a, there's a big part of me that just doesn't want to do it, right? <laughs> like, is there, this, I'm like, no, I need to do this. This is right before God and I, I don't have to put my opinion in there. I just, I need to be a man of, man of integrity. So as we as Christians, we shouldn't be looking for ways out of taxes, you know? If it's a legal way out of taxes, yes, but no illegal ways out of taxes, you know? I can get away with it? No. I want to be honorable, honorable before the Lord. It says a lot about our character in those areas that we would be obedient to the ordinance that have placed over us. Verse 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for a vice, but as a bondservant of God. So God has given us freedom in the cross and the blood of Jesus. But don't use that liberty for a vice, for a cloak that results in a vice, but use that liberty as a bondservant of Christ. A bondservant is a slave by choice. What do you do with the liberty that God has given you? Do you surrender that liberty to be a slave of Christ? Or do we walk around and say, well, my liberty has given me a license for sin? Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There's quite a statement there. So I'm living out this identity. What does it mean to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, the habitation of God? Well, honor all people. Are my actions showing honor to all people? Am I loving believers, the brotherhood, the sisters in Christ? Am I fearing God to have that awe of respect of God? And then am I honoring the king? Am I honoring the authorities that God has placed in my life? Gets more specific and gives us the example of Christ. Servants, be submissive to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. That's a difficult command. O- obey your, your masters. Be submissive to your masters, not only to the ones that are good and gentle, but also to those that are harsh. This also would speak to our bosses and those that God has placed an authority over us. Maybe you have a, a harsh boss, and because of that, you've thought, I don't need to come underneath them. I don't need to come underneath their leadership. And God shows us why in these next few verses. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrong. For what credit is it If you, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So he's saying, what's the big deal if you get punished for your faults? That's to be expected. But, But if you're doing good and you're getting punished, it's commendable before the Lord. So God sees if you have a harsh boss, so I'm going to continue to respect them. I'm going to continue to do my best under the Lord, then God looks at that and says, this is commendable. And again, this is a way to live out before a lost and dying world that our life belongs to Christ. And it gives us this powerful example of Christ. Now, I know as the study goes on, it can be easy to kind of just lose track a little bit or daydream. And these last few verses of this chapter are so powerful. Because if you have somebody harsh in your life to deal with, It may be a boss, it may be a spouse, it may be a child, it may be a (laughs) mother-in-law, maybe a neighbor. I mean, we're talking about living out our faith, 
You're going to come in contact with, with some harsh and unfair people. And it brings us to the example of Christ. It brings us right to the cross. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So here we are living godly, doing good, having a good attitude with this harsh oppressor over us. And what's our attitude? Well, this is not fair. I did not sign up for this. How could God allow this in my life? I want out of this situation, their evil, their harshness, then I can act in any way that I would want. And here God tells us, no, Christ suffered and he left us an example that we should follow his steps. So he's our master. He's our Lord. We're, we're following in his footsteps. The whole message of the cross is he suffered for other people's wrongs. So God's giving us an opportunity to suffer for somebody else's sin, to suffer for somebody else's wrongs, to suffer for, for their harshness. And if we choose to walk that path, we're going to have greater fellowship with Christ. Christ is going to meet us in a very powerful way. And these next few verses are, are mind-blowing. Who committed no sin, speaking of Christ, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as the lamb that was led to the slaughter. He's being reviled. He's being spit upon. His beard's getting ripped out. He's getting accused by, by Pilate and the religious leaders, and he remained silent. He was reviled, but he didn't revile. So you've got a boss that's reviling you, that's harsh, that's maybe even coming against you because you're a Christian. Don't return evil for evil. You got a spouse that's reviling you. You got a child that's reviling you, a neighbor that's reviling you. And it's the hardest thing in the world to do this. Right? Especially to do it with a loving attitude. Right? If we're going to be silent, room. Like, praise the Lord, I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> oh, it's so hard to be in this place and think about what Christ is calling us to. We have to picture him on the cross. We have to picture how he was treated. We have to realize that he didn't revile in return. And what did he do as he suffered? He didn't threaten, but he committed himself to the one who judges rightly. So you've got the harsh boss, the harsh person. You say, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. I'm committing them to you. Help me to be faithful to you. Help me to be a godly example. Help me to live out this new identity that you've given to me. And then God judges rightly. God is the one who, who sets it straight. In verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So Christ bore my sin upon the cross so that I could be forgiven. I was harsh towards Christ in my attitude and my actions. I reviled Christ. I didn't want anything to do with him. And he suffered in order to win my soul and pay the price for my sin. How may God want to reach that harsh person by us being willing to suffer 
in silence with the love of Christ. And you go, well, they're already a believer. Well, sometimes we don't act like believers as believers. Sometimes we can be harsh, even though the Spirit of God lives inside of us. Ultimately, there's something that Christ wants to do in their life if they're a believer and they're acting in a harsh manner. This is completely counterintuitive to the way that we think we should handle a harsh person. You know? You can find a lot of ways from man's wisdom to try to talk yourself out of this text. I realize that. Or you can say, okay, Lord, this is your word. And you said, this is how I should treat someone who's gentle and kind, but also someone who's harsh. And the only way that this can happen is if I press into Christ. If I press into what he's done on the cross. Verse 25, for you are like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So we're reminded of our own sin, our own waywardness. And Christ paid the price so that we could return to him and he would be our shepherd and the overseer of our soul. And I love how this chapter ends because this is a great place to be. If you're God's child and you're allowing him to be your shepherd, what a good place to be. If you're allowing him to be the overseer of your soul, what a great place to be. And you can trust your shepherd as you wrestle through this last part of this teaching, saying, okay, how do I live this out with this harsh person in my life? And trust that Jesus is going to lead you to green pastures. He's going to lead you to still waters. He's going to restore your soul. He's going to meet us and encourage us and allow us to be able to walk this road. But a day with Christ is better than a thousand days elsewhere. So what makes up the difference is knowing I'm in the footsteps of Christ. I'm in the fellowship of Christ, and he's giving me the strength to be able to, to walk this road. You never know who's watching. You don't know who's watching. Those fellow co-workers are like, why are you treating the boss this way? And it's because of Christ. Your kids are watching. They're watching how you're treating your spouse. They, they watch the way your spouse acts. And why are you treating dad like this? You know, dad's so mean. Well, it's because of Christ. Why are you treating mom like this? Mom's so mean. Well, it's because of Christ, you know? Why are you not losing it when the neighbor's losing it and screaming and yelling at your face? Well, it's because of Christ. And to really stop and go, wow, Jesus, thank you so much for what you have, have done for us. So new identity, crave the word, living stones, spiritual house, chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, special people, and then how is identity affecting our behavior? Do I crave the word? It's a good question to ask. Holy Spirit, wake up our desire for, for the word of God. Am I offering spiritual sacrifices? Here God has given us an identity as a priesthood, and am I offering those spiritual sacrifices? Am I proclaiming praise? Am I going through my days going, I'm so glad that I'm not in darkness any longer and I'm in the marvelous light? Are unbelievers observing good works in my life? It's a convicting question. If an unbeliever were to watch my life for a period of time, would they go, is it different than somebody who doesn't know Christ as their Savior? Is it evident that, that Christ uh, is in my life? So let's leave where we began tonight in identity. Where's your identity with the Lord? Do you know that you're loved by the Lord? Do you know that you're God's child? Do you, you take peace in that and rest in that and hope in that? What I love about the Bible and the scriptures is that identity is secure in God's grace if you believe in Christ as your Savior. It's secure. 
even when our behavior's not. It doesn't change your identity. And as we know that God's love is sure for us, then we get to live out of that, that identity. This chapter didn't go, well, if you work hard enough, you're a chosen generation. It says if you believe in the cornerstone, you're a priesthood, you're the habitation of God, and we simply get to live, live out of that place. If you don't know Christ as your Savior tonight, as we went through the scriptures and we went through the, the word, I want to just give an opportunity as we close and as we pray for you, you to receive Christ as your Savior. And as we pray, would you just consider in your own heart where your decision with Christ is? Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for dying for us. Jesus, you're real. You're God. Lord, I just remember so clearly in my life when you revealed yourself to me, and I pray that you would be gracious to reveal yourself to any hearts that have never surrendered to you, that have never been aware of their sin and their need for you. As we've been going through tonight's Bible study, if you feel God drawing your heart to that place of trusting Christ for salvation, would you raise your hand and I'd like to, to pray with you just right where you're at. Raise your hand to the Lord and say, I'd like to receive Christ as my Savior. And we'll just wait for a few moments. Is there anybody here tonight that says, yeah, that's me. Praise the Lord, I see your hand right there. Anybody else? says, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Praise God. Just wait for another moment. And just raise it high and leave it up. And praise God. I see your hand as well. Just say this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I turn away from my sin and ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me and thank you for forgiving me. Be the Lord of my life. You can put your hands down. Father, we just thank you for those that have responded to you. And God, we pray that you'd bless them, that you'd encourage them. You would show them your love. Pray protect them. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God's good. Amen.